Thank you for tuning in to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. High Green is funded by your membership in the society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. As always, if you'd like to learn more about our organization or join us, you can find our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but it's, it's a B&M story and it's a good one. Oh my God, he says, I don't think I ever saw a train down here before. <laughs> he was abused. I still had that wanderlust. I still want to go back railroading. As we head into the holiday season, be sure to check out our online store for all kinds of great Boston and Maine themed gifts. You can find things like our 16 ounce glasses emblazoned with the Minuteman logo, our discs including all editions of our magazine, the B&M Bulletin, up to 2020. We also have winter jackets, sweatshirts, hoodies, winter hats, baseball hats, t-shirts, and all kinds of great books and reading material, including our latest publication, Steam Trains of Yesteryear, The Monadnock Steamtown in Northern Story, which chronicles one of the earliest tourist railroad operations on Boston and Maine trackage. You can head right on over to our online store to find all of these and many more things for the Boston and Maine fan in your life. Or maybe even a little holiday gift for yourself. And from all of us here at the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, we'd like to wish you a happy, safe, and healthy holiday season. Thank you so much for your support. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of High Green, the official podcast from the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. We're here tonight in the home of Jesse Maisie, who we are going to be talking to a little bit about his connection to the Boston and Maine Railroad through his life. Uh, Jesse grew up in Danvers, Massachusetts, so he grew up along the former Boston and Maine Newburyport branch and in close proximity to the Danvers branch and the Lawrence branch. Uh, Jesse grew up after the Boston and Maine was absorbed into Guilford. So his memories of the Boston and Maine is more of the period after the BNM ceased to exist as an independent organization, but um, he has some memories of BNM operations on former BNM lines. He also has worked on former BNM lines, and he's also worked with the Cotton Valley Rail Trail Club um, in enthusiast operations on former BNM lines. So he has quite a connection to the Boston and Maine Railroad. So Jesse, welcome to High Green. Thank you, Rick, for having me on your program. And we also have Andrew Idell from the uh, B&M Historical Society online committee with us here tonight. And uh, just a kind of a funny aside here, this is our second attempt uh, at this interview. We had some technical difficulties last time, so um, it's gonna go smoothly this time, we hope. So yeah, we'll go ahead and get started here. So Jesse, you kind of grew up in this area of uh, Northeastern Massachusetts in the area, um, around Salem, Peabody, and Danvers, uh, directly after the Boston, Maine kind of ceased to exist as an independent uh, company. And as such, you have kind of an interesting insight into uh, operations in this part of the state and the former B&M. As somebody that was growing up in this part of the state during that time, what, was your, um, what were your observations of railroad activity and how did you sort of become interested and involved in railroading as a kid? Sure. So, you know, I 
originally got a uh, model train set when I was a little kid. I think I was probably three or four when I got an HO scale train set and was, uh, you know, interested because outside my house were railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up on Pickering Street in Danvers. Uh, and if I don't live there anymore, but if anyone has Google Maps, they can look up 13 Pickering Street it was my old house. And in the backyard of my house was the Danvers station. Right. Uh, and next to the house was the runaround for Danvers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't really notice trains at that age um, until one day I saw what looked like a tractor uh, pulling some tank cars up the line. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that time in the, 80s and 90s they had been experimenting with track mobiles right, yep. to um bring about tank cars to save on costs or whatever reason they did um but as time went on i started to become more and more cognizant of the trains i uh, had a lot of interest in my model railroad mm -hmm. uh, as a kid uh, my father had set up a piece of plywood for me like every other kid and <laughs> uh and i just ran the trains in circles mm -hmm. That was like really the first introduction to trains for me was actually seeing a track mobile. I thought it was kind of weird that it could just drive off the rail. Right. Uh, rather than doing a runaround in Danvers, they would just drive off the track and drive to the other side of the consist mm -hmm. uh, rather than use the uh, the siding. Yep. Yeah. I remember as a, as a young child, uh, I was in first grade and, you know, I would... Um, walk home from school um, with my mother and usually at about that time of night uh, or that time in the afternoon you would start to see the locomotive uh, coming out to uh, serve eastern propane mm -hmm. uh, they would come up from what ultimately was Wakefield through Linfield West Peabody and across Route 1 into Danvers right. um, in order to get the eastern propane by that time because uh, the Waters River trestle was out of service <clears throat> they would have to do a runaround and a shove move all the way through town because yep. uh, Easton propane was a facing point switch. Okay. Um, and my first cab ride was when I was in first grade, there was a, a, a thing at school where you could show your interests to other kids and you're like a little table. Mm -hmm. And I brought my trains and I brought a couple locomotives and we lived right near the school um it was on the same street so walking home um it was dark it, i don't know what time it was but it was dark it was also winter so it could have been three in the afternoon right uh we were walking home and we saw the train again i was all excited and the conductor saw that i had model trains in my hand yeah. and he got talking to me and said well you know asked my mother is it okay if we put them in the engine you can go meet us at the next crossing. So, you know, I, I wasn't going to take no for an answer as a first grader. <laughs> right. And so we, you know, we like got my cab ride. My mother picked me up at the next crossing. Uh, you know, I think they trundled along about five miles an hour oh, sure. at the time. Um, but that was like my, that was essentially the hook into mm -hmm. it. Um, and, you know, I remember as a kid, like, I would, in the wintertime, go out and shovel the switch on the at the runaround 
because that was the one literally that was outside my bedroom window. And I'm sure they still put in for the hour of switch clearing time, but I, every snowstorm was out there with my plastic snow shovel doing my best to keep the track clear for them. That was my, that was my duty. And I, I took pride in it. Uh, And it was a, an occasion one winter where either they outlawed or they had mechanical trouble Mm -hmm. and the entire train was left up on the runaround. Yeah. And, you know, having a locomotive outside my bedroom door or outside my bedroom window that I could just stare at all the time. And it was great. And that whole weekend I took it as my solemn sworn duty to go protect that engine. And I would always walk down there and walk around it and make sure no one else went on it. And you know, I'm like some, you know, you know, second grader (laughs) saying, get off my train. Right. Exactly. Um, But you know, I always remember that, that, you know, the crew was very friendly. The conductor's name was Terry Maschino. He's since passed away, but he was a, he was a hell of a guy. Uh, during Christmas, they would actually drop off like a lantern or a hard hat or something or a timetable that said uh, Guilford. Yep. And mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as a little kid, I mean, you think that's, you know, that's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, and about the, you know, we moved in 1996 to a different part of town and I was still close to the tracks mm-hmm. uh, a little bit towards the uh, the Pine Street area. and. The last train I remember seeing in Danvers, at least that I saw, was in 1997. Okay. And I remember in 96, they come through and replaced a bunch of ties. Oh, yeah. And then in 97, that was the the line was embargoed, and that was it for trains in Danvers. Yeah, that, that was pretty common. They, they did the same thing um, up in, in Londonderry. They did a whole tie job down through Manchester Airport, and then, like, two years later, they were done with it. So I think I think that was something probably just to satisfy, you know, the state commissions or something like that having to do with the properties. Um, but it's, it's neat that you mentioned some of the older guys that you noticed, you know, when you were, um, when you were a kid, because a lot of those guys I'm sure were B and M, you know, veterans originally. Oh yeah. These, these guys were original, either B and M or main central. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know what the bidding was like mm-hmm. when they incorporated Springfield terminal into the whole thing. I mean, that was, that was, way way beyond my comprehension oh, as a sure. little kid <laughs> yeah. but um i remember it was uh terry held down that job pretty regularly mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the one night that he didn't hold down that job I, he was on vacation or so they had a new crew out there yeah and they weren't familiar with the territory because the conductor that was out there shoved three loaded propane cars onto the Waters River Trestle and they they derailed. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. I remember hearing about it. Yeah. And I know that if you haven't seen that trestle up close, (laughs) it's uh it's about as shaky as a three dollar bill. And you know, but it's a testament to how that trestle was built because that trestle held up three loads and sustained the impact from a derailment. And it's still standing. (laughs) And it's still standing today. A couple you know not too far from here actually. Yeah. Yeah. And it you know I've over the years when I when I got my first drone I you know, walked over there and flew around it, and like it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk across it myself. But I don't care about the robot, so no. I put it right up close, and wow, that was, uh, that was, uh, that thing's in, in some rough condition yeah. now. Yeah, it is, and it, it's funny that there's some pictures that are floating around of that, and 
I think those cars stayed on there for a, a little while. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. They, they, they. It was in the middle of winter, mm-hmm. and um, for whatever reason, the on the Peabody side, they removed the track and had a bunter. Yes. Um, yep. But on the Danvers side, they didn't. They it just opened rail right onto the bridge. Right. And I think their remedy after that was they put a couple of wheel stops. Okay. Just before yep. the bridge, but. Yeah, you'd think they put ties in the way or something, you know. But yeah, and you know, it was like I said, that, that was the one time I know it was it, was, it wasn't Terry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he was on vacation or sick or whatever, but it was some new conductor and he shoved it right yeah. out there. Yeah, that that's the funny thing too is that when you're a kid and you're and all these things are happening around you and you're you're growing up in the railroad interest, I, I don't think you realize offhand the you know the significance of the things that you're you're seeing until until a long time after and that's kind of the, the curse of growing up is that you know you know when i was a kid i remembered a lot of things that uh are gone now and a lot of it was was track that was still in place or, or ties that were still in place or something like that but um you know until recent years i haven't put two and two together I actually i found a notebook the other day um my family had a paper company that was right next to the tracks in manchester and um they um the local Nashville local used to go right by, and I remember, um, I remember, I would write down uh, what I would see, and I remember one day I wrote down uh, GP nine goes by, and it turned out to be a, a GP forty high hood, but I didn't know, you know, any better as a kid. But that's the kind of thing that you don't really realize that's going on when you're a kid, and then you realize later, and you're like, oh, it's cool, I got to see this. So I think for you growing up in this area, you know, especially a former B and M branch line it's kind of neat that you have those experiences. Now, when did you start to tie things together that, you know, the importance of this being a B&M line and when did you kind of come to that realization? Well, when I first started becoming aware that of what the B&M even was, mm-hmm. um, it was through this book here um, called the boss of the main photographic essay. And it was by Philip Ross Hastings or featured his photographs. I don't know if he actually wrote it, but um you know, I got this book, I think as a Christmas present, or I got it somehow as a little kid, very little. Yeah. This is very old. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I started to make the connection that what I lived next to was the old Boston and Maine, and that there was a Boston and Maine outside of my 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 side window in right. my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that book absolutely fascinated oh, me yeah. because I would just spend hours and hours and hours, um, you know, just staring yep. at, at the pictures in there and um, what was, mm-hmm. and that's where actually I, I even became cognizant of what steam locomotives were. Yeah. Uh, because I never grew up in the age of steam. No. Um, and you know that that always is a foreign concept to me because yeah. my first train set was diesel and you know i saw diesels outside my house and when i looked at the pictures of those locomotives billowing smoke and you know that that to me was just amazing um and that that book i i would just sit there for <laughs> i said hours and hours yeah. at night just 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 looking through it and that's when i first became cognizant there was there was a bigger world number one outside of my little environ as a kid, but that, you know, there was something called the Boston and Maine and, yeah. you know, there was some history to it. Um, Cause no one in my family was rare, like a railroad person. I was the first person. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting. And it's great that you bring up you know sort of railroad media as being a formative touchstone for for a kid. You know, I I followed kind of the same path you did. I you know growing up, my family had a, had an interest in trains mostly because my dad unloaded boxcars delivered by the B and M switcher at the family paper company, and my mom. Uh, the Conway branch ran right through her backyard, so the snow trains and all that would, would go right by um, the RDC snow trains, of course, not the, the original ones. But, um, but yeah, they had an interest in it, but, but I think that, you know, what really took it to another level for me was the books and the videos and, and all of this. And I know, Andrew, you kind of have a similar path as well. I know that you uh, really got started with uh, Robert Willoughby Jones's books, and uh, that kind of formed the connection for you as well. Yeah, de definitely, Rick. Uh, Robert Willoughby Jones's first of his uh, trilogy, uh, Three Colorful Decades of New England Railroading. I got that when I was maybe, I was probably a little older, maybe like 15, 16 years old. But either way, like it brought to life these locations that I had maybe heard about, but I'd obviously never gone to, yeah. you know, being too young to have a driver's license at that time, you know, places like Bellows Falls or uh, Irving, Massachusetts, just all these random B&M locations that I'd heard about but never seen for myself. And uh, Jesse, I can also relate to the Newburyport branch in that I grew up going to my grandmother's house up in uh, Wakefield, Mass. And she lived uh, not too, too far from the tracks. Um, you know, when I was younger, they were still periodically active, but uh, I never got to see a train on those tracks. And uh, all those years of going through the Wakefield area, you know, just wondering there was the active commuter rail line on the Western main line. Then you had this abandoned branch line going through town. I always, I always yearned to see a train on those tracks. I never did. Um, the final irony with that though, is I live in Melrose now. So I'm oftentimes in Wakefield and Peabody, uh, Reading area doing errands, et cetera. And they've been doing a massive uh, track work project on the Western route. So they're using the stub of the Newburyport right now as a staging area for all the track equipment. So fi finally now, after all these years, I see rail vehicles on this line that's yeah. sadly pretty much totally abandoned and in the process of becoming a rail trail. Yeah, when um, the town here was trying to start the process of a rail trail, uh, you know, there was a kind of a, a push by a few of us to make it like up in Wolfboro that we'll get in the later of the rail with trail. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, unfortunately didn't, uh, that idea didn't take very well. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I think they, I think those uh, contracts had been awarded before there was any public comment uh, yeah. allowed. So, but that's not for here or there. That was, uh, unfortunately, at least the Eastern division is gone. The Boston and Maine portion or Salem and Lowell originally uh, is still intact yep. up to Danvis Junction. Um, I don't know what their future plans are, but the MBTA wouldn't relinquish that right away to a rail trail. The rail's actually still in. Um, so, yeah. I feel like every now and then I'll, read or see something that shows like, you know, potential future commuter rail and Danvers always kind of seems to be on that sort of backlist. Now, whether that would, whether that would ever happen, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not going to hold my breath on that, but 
Yeah. It, uh, it does seem to kind of come up here and there in like transit studies, et cetera. So it does, it does seem to be on people's mind in some way, shape or form. I literally said to Rick outside, I said, it seems every two years when there's a congressional district, uh, you know, election, that transit study that they're going to put an electric trolley or an RDC or some sort of self-propelled vehicle between downtown Danvers and Salem Station seems to mysteriously arise yep. and, until the election's over. And then you never you never hear about it again for another two years. Right. Yeah. Well, believe me, it's, a, it's the same story up in New Hampshire, <laughs> as I know well. So. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's funny, you know, we all come from, from different backgrounds and different places and different pieces of the B&M. And, and, but we all kind of have this same feeling towards the B&M. And, and I've always felt this way about the Boston and Maine and the Maine Central and, and New England railroads. And it's probably true for wherever you're from and whatever your local railroad is. But there's such a, such a common theme and feeling about the Boston and Maine that it's in some way a special railroad and that it was a special railroad and that you have people over in you know England and, and Germany that are members of the society that that have the same interest in the BNM that may have never even set foot on BNM territory. So, in, in what, in your mind, what kind of makes the BNM special, and and what about it um, has kept you interested, you know, from childhood in this in this topic? Well, Rick, that that's an interesting question because you and I uh, both have the problem that uh, the Egyptologist Zawi Hawass has is he never was an Egyptian but he has to interpret and write books about the history of the Egyptian empire. Um, you and I never grew up with the B&M. We, we were a little too late to the party. Yeah. Um, so we, all we can do is look at pictures, books, memories, ar archives, current operations. You know, for me, I mean, there's a little bit of a hometown advantage, uh, like, you know, why people like the Red Sox and Patriots over any other team in the NFL yeah, or the right. MLB, but uh, for me, you know, what stuck with the B&M and why I became such a B&M fan mm -hmm. was that book yeah. that captivated my imagination of these beautiful locomotives. We're going through beautiful small town places. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been a big city person, right. but, you know, I, I love that, you know, we here in New England... <laughs> have a locomotive going through a covered bridge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I don't know about every place in the United States, but that's pretty unique to this part of the world. Yeah. They, they would go to the bother of a covered bridge, right. uh, let alone several in this area. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's what always kind of captivated me was, you know, staring at those images that I was next to it. And I remember during like snowstorms, you know, watching the, the switcher do its work outside my house as a little kid you know being outside and watching the headlight pierce through the snow uh sitting there on the snowbank just looking at the glow of the number boards yeah. on that locomotive on this big black locomotive and you'd see that white g and that orange stripe and that 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 number board lit and you could smell the warm metal and it and if you've smelt it before you're smelling it right you're now you're smelling it now and, and the cool thing, too, is I think that that kind of keeps us all tied into it is that, you know, that, you know, 50 years before you were standing there, some little kid was standing there looking at a, a 6 switcher. That's right. You know, <laughs> smelling the steam and the smoke versus, you know, the, 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 the diesel fuel and, and all that. But, yeah, it really is a, a fantastic railroad. And, and so many things about the B&M, you know, 
attract so many different people. I mean, where else in, in, in the world are you going to find a railroad that had at one point in time, the largest RDC fleet in the world was still running steam commuter passenger trains with wooden coaches and was running, you know, long distance passenger trains with E units running through covered bridges on the Conway branch, you know, with. And they, and they had electrified mainline operations. They had the Hoosier Tunnel, you know, <laughs> you know electric tunnel. Exactly. They, you know, I, I think if you were to uh, categorize the B&M, I mean, you really got to split it up in at least three divisions. Oh, I for mean, sure. I mean, you had your rural branch lines. You had your heavy haul mainline freight yep. that served the nitty gritty industrial years of Lowell, Lawrence, Worcester. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in, in the Fitchburg area, I mean, you had that. They had, you know single car combines going through covered bridges. Right, and then you have the commuter stuff in Boston. <laughs> and, and then you have yeah. right in Boston with, with commuter trains yeah. and, you know, uh, you know, passenger operations going up the main and out west. And, you know, it, it, you know, you go into the a mountain railroading on the west end and, and you have a, electric locomotives right. through, yeah. uh, you know, a tunnel that rivals some of the stuff in the west, like sure. Stevens Pass and Stampede yeah. Pass. Yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting. It was, it was one umbrella yeah. for one company. Exactly. And it was really, it said three or four different it's really divisions. A bunch of companies, yeah. right, right. And that, that, that has to do, of course, with all the mergers, you know, swallowing up all the stuff in the 1800s. But, but yeah, no, it, it was. And I, Andrew, you have thought about that? Yeah, what I was going to say, what's especially cool about the uniqueness of New England, too, geographically, is that a rail fan back in the prime of the BM, theoretically, they could rail fan like the industrial lines of Lawrence. Then they could rail fan the busy Fitchburg main line. Then they could drive right up to Peterborough, New Hampshire, rail fan, you know, mogul country. It was yeah. really, you know, it was really just uh, rail fans delight in a lot of ways back in the prime of its uh, system or the height of the system, I should say. I think that's why you see so much, uh, so many of these well-known photographers, um, you know, that visited the B&M, you know, that weren't necessarily, um, you know, from B&M territory. Now, you know, you see Jim Shaughnessy was from Troy which was B&M territory, but, you know, that's way, way out there on the West End. But, I mean, he came and shot the B&M, and, and, you know, all kinds of people came and shot it and maybe only visited for, you know, once in their lifetime. But like you said, they came, you know, and covered so much in, in one, one go. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have the privilege of doing that now because we missed out on a lot of that. But, but that's what's so great about all these photos and books and all this stuff is you can rediscover it. And, uh, and it, it, you're never going to be looking for for mysteries to solve. And it's just, it's such a great, great thing to cover. And I know you also have, obviously <laughs> looking around here an interest in the main central as well, yeah. which, which follows a similar, a similar spirit. I mean, you here you have a railroad that's, you know, a 44 tonner and two, two hoppers go into a cannery in Eastport. And then on the other side of the system, you have a mountain railroad, you know, the mountain division that rivals, you know, some of the stuff in the West or the Alleghenies. And it's very, it's a very unique railroad. Now, how did you come to be interested in the main central well as a, as a kid um my cousins lived up in maine originally they lived in burlington which there's nothing around there mm -hmm. and then they had moved to belfast um and they lived right up the hill from the belfast yard yep. um if you ever been to belfast the entire town is one hill yeah um and the yard was right at the bottom of that by the, the river and you know as a little kid we would go up to Belfast 
And of course, there's something wrong in my brain because I'm instantly magnetated towards trains. So I was always wandering around down in Belfast, getting kicked out of the yard, and I'd be climbing in that Berlin Mills engine they used for parts. It was stuffed and out, stuffed and mounted out in the back. Yep. And I was I was always getting kicked out of there as a kid. Um, now I yell at people for trespassing, but I, was, <laughs> I did the same thing. So believe me, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm knowing the talk. But uh, you know, the the main central proper. Um, I had heard of it, but I had never had much connection other than my trips to Maine yeah. until I got into motor cars, uh, the, you know, the rail cars. And, you know, I did a trip on the mountain division um, with the rail car in what you're instantly addicted. I mean, yeah. what's not the love of it? It's mountain railroading. And, yeah. you know, then I got, uh, you know, the main central and color books. Right. And, addicted. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like I said, it's the same problem with main central is that was long gone yeah. before I, or I came around. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I remember I was thinking like, wow, this was the best they could do back then. Like they, they couldn't, you know, why didn't they just root it through the B&M? Right. Right, right, right. Why build a whole, I mean, Guilford eventually made that decision anyway. Yeah. But, you know, I, I guess they only do two independent companies. Right. But, yeah. That's, yeah. But I remember just riding up that line and going, the amount of labor and workmanship sure. that was done to make that mountain railroad possible. And. You know, this was, uh, you know, guys with shovels. This yeah. wasn't excavators and loaders, and this was horses and shovels. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you look at the, the craftsmanship they put into a culvert, mm-hmm. just a simple culvert, yeah. uh, just the chiseled granite and everything is fits. Dry laid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just yep. so fits so tight. And, you know, that was uh, one of the ways I got really hooked in the main center. And I also I loved the harvest gold paint scheme. Yeah. I just there's something about that paint scheme that I love. Um, I don't know why. I, I don't know. It's just uh, it's a very fascinating railroad, and it ran through so much diverse area. You know, a lot, obviously a lot of rural areas, uh, but you had the mountains of New Hampshire, and then in the Vermont, we're in a change with the CP, and you know, that was just a that, that line always fascinated the mountain division proper. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I don't know much of the geography of Maine in detail as I do New Hampshire, Massachusetts, right. and so on. Uh, you know, beyond I've ridden a lot of lines in Maine um, in my in my rail car, but uh, I'm riding in the modern day yeah. where it was MMA and CMQ. Uh, I was never around for the Bangor or Rustic mm-hmm. or the Maine Central. Yeah. Um, so. And a lot of that stuff has been merged and moved and uh, stuff. So and one thing we were saying about being them gobbling up corporations, uh, we talked about last time is I'm shocked that in the 1950s, when the Boston I mean, owned the main central, that they didn't make a Guilford of the time, they relinquished control of it. Yeah. And one thing we did, we did talk about a little bit is that there was some, there was some talk about that uh, between um, later on in, in the seventies uh, between um, Spencer Miller the main central, um, Alan Dustin of the B&M and um, uh, Buck Dumain, who was, who was at the Bangor and Aroostook. And they were talking about doing some sort of New England merger, at the very least, at least, you know, pooling power and stuff like that. And it, it never did happen. Um, I guess you could technically say Guilford was that, even though the Bangor and Aroostook wasn't included. Um, but they, they were talking about it in the 70s. And there was some talk about including the B&M in, in the Norfolk and Western and all of that. So um, I think 
what ended up happening was I think um, a lot of companies and forces outside of New England was looking at what was happening in New England with, with you know, um, manufacturing and all that and was kind of hesitant to touch, you know, a sick railroad like the B&M, at least in the early 70s. So unfortunately, you know, you didn't see that happen earlier. But if you had seen that happen earlier, I mean, maybe something like that would have strengthened the system. You can't really say for sure in hindsight. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll never know. I mean, I just, I, I always wondered why. I mean, they had a joint rare of the Portland Terminal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't alive. I didn't work there. Um, but just the, you see conglomerates now mm-hmm. that just swallowed up. and. I always thought it was just such a waste yeah. when you get to the end of your track, swapping your locomotives out, right. especially the diesel there, yeah. where they're all the same. Essentially, you know, it's all a, a, a pinned connector, yeah. um, you know, swapping out your power, but uh, for, you know, another set of locomotives, but that, that was the style of the time. Yeah. And it may have had something to do with, with, with the way labor laws were back then. I don't know if, if, you know, there was something having to do with the unions and the power and, and the ownership, I'm, I know a lot of the B&M stuff was, was not owned by the B&M. I know a lot of it was owned by the bank. So maybe they had some problem with, with Maine Central using B&M power that the B&M didn't own or something like that. But yeah, that is, that is interesting. And New England is kind of unique in that sense where for a long time, there was no major merger culture when it came to the railroads. Um, you know, when, it, when I think about the B&M and the Maine Central and all that. So, Well, I think that one of the problems that B&M had back then and obviously it's proved true is um i mean you look at the simple north country around wakefield groveton berlin gorham i mean that is a mind-boggling maze (laughs) because it's not today what you see is not what was and i've tried to look at maps and uh, you know we're going to do a motor car excursion on the remaining part of the berlin branch and just trying to wrap my head around Okay, where did this actually go? Yeah. Uh, we rode the Stewartston branch, um, the last remaining portion of that before it was ripped up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the motor cars. It was like, falls, yeah. yeah, it was like six miles, and it was beautiful country up, oh, yeah. up there. But, yeah, you know, that's the problem the B&M had is they had a lot of duplicate lines that went to this, eventually to the same place right. in, you know, consolidation and yeah. cost. Uh, at the time they were built, they were probably profitable. But, you know... I never felt bad about rail trails on stuff that wasn't profitable in the thirties. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they weren't making money on that when railroads were the only thing around uh, and they were consolidating lines. So, you know, I, if someone makes a rail trail on that, it's not that, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. doesn't really get my cackles up too much. Yeah. Like J- Jesse, I'll just uh, chime in for a second on that. Like I admit in many ways, I do enjoy the rail trails and that they allow me to like access areas that have fit, was, you know, just an abandoned right of way or maybe reverted to adjacent landowners, you wouldn't get access to. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, towns like New Boston, New Hampshire, (laughs) I mean, Bristol, I don't think Bristol, New Hampshire is going to be looking for a freight service from Pan Am or CSX anytime in the near future, you know? Right. So it's, I mean, recently the town of Bristol, like they've been unearthing their uh, old turntable site down by the river, I believe. They're going to put like a park, a trail down there. And I mean, for I'd much rather see it go to that purpose for the public to enjoy than for all that to just be lost in the woods, never to be seen again. So, yeah. you know, ob- obviously, first and foremost, I'm a train guy, but, 
you know, at, at the end of the day, a lot of these lines to your point, Jesse, they're, they're just not coming back and they never will. So why don't we do what we can to preserve what's left there? So people, mm -hmm. people like us can at least take a walk and be like, Oh, look, there's a culvert there. There's a, you know, maybe there's a mile post somewhere, you know, just uh, yeah. get it, get it. So it can be enjoyed from sort of an archeological perspective. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you there. I mean, even stuff that you know the BM parted with in, in the 70s, you know, like the Goffstown branch, a seven-mile branch, they were doing one, two cars at a time. I mean, you know, that's never gonna have a practical use. But but yeah, it's it's interesting too, with you know, all these lines that you know, there's so much that you're um that you have a, a, an opportunity to uh to explore and, and to learn about. And and one thing that all three of us have a common interest in are logging railroads specifically up in the white mountains uh and that's another whole nother world where you could spend your entire life just researching that and where did these logging lines go when were they used what kind of power did they use when uh, when were they done away with um and and that's something that you and i have discussed and i know andrew and i have discussed and we talked about a little bit last time but um why do logging railroads interest you specifically and, and where did you kind of get into that whole interest well, um, they interest me because, I mean, those were the log trucks of the day. Um, and those guys would work so hard mm -hmm. to build a track up the side of a mountain to use it for six months and then rip it up yeah. and go somewhere else. I mean, that was the only way to get the stuff out. Um, but just the country they were in, the type of territory. Yeah. Uh, what really fascinates me is that, you know, without looking too hard, you can stumble across switch stands in the middle of what seems to be nowhere today. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that really uh, that really just fascinates me. You can be walking out in the, the side of a mountain and there's a piece of 60 pound rail just sitting out there. Yeah. And you think of the, 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 the manpower and stuff to build that. That's that's but initially fascinates me, but also the, the types of locomotives. And oh, that yeah. was my first introduction was, uh, was Clark's trading post, you know, as, as much as, you know, we like to make fun of the bear show and everything <laughs> right. um, yeah, yeah. and feeding your relatives to the bears, uh, you know, thank God that the Clark brothers had the forethought to save that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, and I've said to you before, I mean, you know, looking at satellite pictures, we've, you know, mm -hmm. I said, there's something beyond Hobo Junction. Yeah. The satellite is just, the pictures are too straight. There's no straight lines in nature. Um, and, you know, we ended up being the, the Johnson branch there, but, you know, walking around Clark's, I was a little bit ignorant my, the first time I had been there as to the history of those engines. And yep. when I started digging, I thought those were brought in from somewhere else initially. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't ever go there as a kid. I went there when I first started dating my my wife um, way back when. But I didn't realize those those were hometown heroes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. in fact, the Shea number five was actually along with the other number five were ICC commissioned to actually run on the main line uh, of the B&M. Yeah. And that's an interesting fact. You see a Shea in mainline service. <laughs> right. From, uh, uh, you know, as far as Livermore yep. Falls, back up to Woodstock and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, there was a, a Shea on, in mainline service here in, in, in New right. Hampshire. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think it was very fascinating and, and amazing that Clark's took the, because you know, they could easily dieselize and the average tourist would never know the difference. Right. And, you know, I'm a little bit saddened in the last couple of years, they haven't run steam a lot, yeah. if at all. And they haven't done the steam days because that's just an absolutely fascinating day. Oh yeah. And I would, you know, I I've been to that steam days fest before and I just, what a great day up there, but that's where I really became cognizant that these engines still exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And these weren't from some far West logging camp. Yeah. They were running down the street. Yeah. Um, You you look at the the climax of the Shay and, and, you know, yeah, the atmosphere of Clark's, you know, trading post kind of, kind of, at first glance, you're right. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, but then you realize you're standing next to a shay that a hundred years ago was used in these woods mm-hmm. by these, you know, logging guys, rough and tumble logging guys back when that part of New Hampshire was basically a frontier. It, it, it was, I mean, a wild West town. I mean, you think about yeah, the way the, yeah. the white mountains used to be. I mean, you look at the Bill Gove books yeah. and I mean, it was, it was no different than Washington or Oregon. Yep. Uh, the spruce was an attractive commodity for them. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the spruce from that part of New Hampshire was very well renowned yeah. for its ability. It was actually using a lot of aircraft in World War I. Oh, um, that's right. Yep. And, you know, they, uh, you know, th- th- those guys were hardworking men. And you wouldn't find that kind of character almost anywhere today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and that was tough work. I mean, those guys got up at the crack of dawn and they worked a long time. But what I'm very happy uh, with Clark's Trading Post is to me, it's the Edaville of logging railroads. Yep. You know, it saved these locomotives from scrap, uh, same as Edaville did to the main two footers. Yep. Uh, so that they, someday a future generation can look at that. Yeah. Um, you know, I can go see the BB River number five. You right. Know, uh, I can go see the climax number six. Yeah. And, you know, I, I really hope kind of coming out of the COVID world and people pulling away their security blankets a little bit that they will start running steam and tourism will come back to the, its levels that it used to be. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we can have those steam locomotives stay in an operational condition. And I understand like any business, they have to make money. And steam right. is an incredibly, incredibly <laughs> expensive yeah, it uh, can be. Uh, outfit. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm no, I'm no fool when it comes to that, that type of stuff. Um, right. You know, these are businesses, they do have to make money. Uh, so the railroader in me understands that the rail fan in me goes, I wish that was a, yeah. a steam engine right now. <laughs> another, another paradox that you, you've experienced too. Point uh, circling back to the logging railroads. I think, when I started, especially looking at uh, Bill Gove's books a few years back, um, you look at these maps of like just the web of track that expanded outwards from, uh, you know, Lincoln kind of being the quote unquote hub of these logging railroads. And they just went so deep into this like uninhabited wilderness back. Yeah. In, I mean, even, even to today, I mean, the wilderness that these railroads ran into, like you wouldn't want to get lost there without a map, a compass, <laughs> GP. I mean, this is... Yeah. This is very, very wild country, even to this day. And these logging railroads, they just, you know, built them every, every like nook and cranny of this wilderness. And it's pretty, and to Jesse's point, like with pretty primitive tools, horses, wagons, picks, shovels. I mean, it's pretty, 
pretty fascinating what was accomplished there so long ago and nowadays is you know many people hiking in probably are aware of what it was but i'm guessing just as many of the hikers you see going into the woods there have no idea of what was once uh running through those woods down those trails yeah i mean in a way you can't you can't blame them because i mean when you think about the white mountains the thing about the logging roads that that always appealed to me was just the mystery of it i mean mm. you got this i mean these deep dark woods you don't know what's in there um you know places like um livermore the village and, and all this and it's like it's just so so interesting to me is that you know the average person you know going to lincoln for the weekend or or, or whatever or skiing at uh you know any of those ski places they don't know what what used to be in those woods and what still is in those woods and 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 that's just so interesting to me and you know kind of going off of your your piece there about hiking and hikers i know the long the long trail over in vermont a lot of that is built on former logging railroads in, in the Manchester, Vermont area. And that's a similar thing too, is that you're right, a lot of these right-of-ways survive now as hiking trails. Um, you think about like the Zeeland Falls Railroad, or the Zeeland Valley Railroad up in, um, up way up north in New Hampshire. That A lot of that's a popular hiking trail now, but I mean, where you're hiking, you know, climaxes used to, <laughs> used to run, you know? Yeah, and you know, you, uh, at least me, I always ask why. Yeah. Why does, why mm -hmm. is this here? Uh, you know, you drive down a street in town and go, why is this depot road? Where was the train station? Yep. And I would drive through Lincoln um, when I first, I never really had much exposure to Lincoln um, other than when I first started doing the hobo track car run yep. that we used to do up in Lincoln. And I would kind of drive around the area and I would see the EB&L locomotive outside Loon oh, sure, yeah. and go, why? Why right. is this here? Um, I wasn't really, really aware of what was the extent of the EB&L. Um, and back then, some of the mills, when I first started doing that run, were somewhat there. Yeah, yeah. Some of the remains yeah. were there. Most of that had been gone and starting to be developed to the, the resort that's there today. But, I mean, when you go into the, the plaza where Gordy's Fish and Steak is, mm -hmm. why is that little Plymouth switcher there? Yeah. You know, ask yourself why. Why is it? What's the story behind this? And that's what always fascinated me is there's so many relics of that still around. Mm -hmm. Um you know, you, you coming up the Kangamangas, you can see the grade yeah. Uh, yeah. there. And, you know, if you, you've got a sharp eye, you can see we're on up to the uh, turnaround right by the hairpin turning. It's Hancock Trailhead. Yep. Um, you know, you can still see some of that gradient there. And, I mean, nature is obviously taking over yeah. year by year. But it's just it's a fascinating part of, you know, New Hampshire history. But. I mean, that was the, the rough and tumble frontier. Oh, and yeah. that was people coming over, uh, you know, seeking the promise of the United States. Yep. Uh, so many agents would go to Boston and New York to, to draft these these men right off the boat. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they didn't need to speak English because they didn't need to talk to anybody. Right. Um, if they're from Norway or something like that, it's yeah. a plus, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that, that, that also kind of speaks to me is that, you know, the promise of America yeah. was there because these people came over from whatever they were in, and this hard life logging was better than what they had. Yeah, that's true. Yep. And railroading and, and logging railroading. And you see that, I mean, no matter what railroad company or operation you're looking at, um, you know, the B&M was certainly, certainly not exempt from that. You know, you had certain guys that, that spoke, you know, French Canadian and, and spoke French you know, on the job. And, yeah. and if you, you were, uh, you know, if you 
you were from Boston and somehow you, you hired on to, you know, a job somewhere up North, you didn't fit in, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting. And, and you know, one thing about going back to the logging railroads yeah. um, is, you know, we think today we in the present are so disconnected from the past. Right. But not that long ago, no. this existed. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you want to think we, we're a relatively young country. Yeah. But we think back to the 1800s is so far away. The 1900s is so far away. But when you look at it, Thomas Jefferson, Harriet Tubman, and Ronald Reagan all could have met each other. Yeah. We're not that far no. from the past. No, we're not. And that's why I think places like Clark's that preserve this it's for the future. Yeah. Are such, are such great things. Yeah. One thing that I didn't realize that I found fascinating is that the East Branch in Lincoln actually wasn't fully abandoned till uh, 1960, I think. Yeah. And that 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 just that astounded me. I was like, right. how could how could something an operation of this size, this magnitude, be abandoned? You know, not too too. I mean, like within our parents' lifetime. Yeah. And that's true. there's really not a whole lot of traces of it left, and it it was just. Uh, that was just sort of a fact that blew my mind. I was like, wow, there were main lines on the B&M that were abandoned before the East Branch in Lincoln was fully abandoned. Just to give a little context. <laughs> right, the, the give it a little con- yeah, the White Mountains Division was gone. Part of the Eastern was gone to yeah. Portland. I mean, it's it's pretty astounding when you think of it in that uh, perspective. And they were still using the number five right up until the early 60s maybe into the 60s yeah i think yeah yeah, i think there might be uh bill gove his like big the big book he did on the lincoln woods i think there might be like a photo from towards the very end of that locomotive i'll have to look for it but yeah Yeah. it's pretty pretty they they did an excursion up to lincoln in 64 with rdc's bud cars and they brought out that steam engine and ran it you know back and forth I don't know if it was still on the roster for the East Branch Lincoln at that point, or if the Clarks had acquired it and just hadn't moved it yet. But it was still in Lincoln at the in the mill yard, an operational status in '64. Yeah. You know, so that's you know, yeah. and my parents were born in '62. You know, and and so you're really not that far you're, disconnected. You're never from that me. far away. You're not. Yeah. You go talk to somebody, uh, you know, like Dane Malcolm, and, and shake his hand and know that he met guys that were railroading in like 1910, 1900. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's crazy the way these things work, but but it's always good to keep it in perspective for sure. Now, another topic that we're all kind of interested in, and, and you have a very invested interest in, is the Wolfboro Railroad. And the Wolfboro is something that is kind of a common fabric around here, especially around people that are interested in the Boston and Maine, because so many people have a connection to the Wolfboro Railroad, whether it's having been there and experienced it, having started railroading, working for the Wolfboro, or having uh, you know, kind of discovered the Boston and Maine through the modern day iteration of the Wolfboro Railroad, which is the Cotton Valley Rail Trail, um, you know, through the motor car group and that sort of thing. So, you know, with the Wolfboro Railroad being kind of a common thread for so many people, how did you become invested in it? So uh, kind of the same thing, Rick, with the, with the B&M is uh, daily dollar short on when I was born. Yeah. Um, the Wolfboro folded up in 86 and I was born in 84. So uh, we had no connection to Wolfboro until 1987 when my grandparents bought a little lakeside cottage there on Route 109. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going there as a little kid, uh, we would go past Fernald Station, we'd go past the engine house. Uh, I remember the crossing lights still being there uh, at Route 28, uh, right by where the Wright Museum is now. 
never really, I always looked down the tracks in hopes of seeing a train that was never going to come. I remember there's a little restaurant there, Katie's Kitchen, down in the Wolfboro Plaza, which actually is on an old bay that was filled in. Um, And, you know, they'd have like pictures of the trains. And I always thought that was fascinating, little drawings of the the trains. Uh, And there was a, but as far as like the Wolfboro proper, never really had much of a personal connection at the time. Yeah. Uh, there was a amazing railroad uh, attraction in Wolfboro uh, called the Clickety Clack Model Railroad. Uh, they had, it was a hobby store out front, but in the back, they had just an absolutely amazing, amazing train layout. And, you know, I think that was really kind of another fascinating thing for me was like, that was like our vacation spot. That was, We'd always go to the clickety clack, and I, you know, I, I know my parents again. They're not, they weren't trained people, but yeah. uh, they probably get frustrated with me. But I, would, I could spend all day watching the layout out back there, and um, you know, time went on. Again, nothing really I saw with Wolfboro. Uh, I didn't even know there was a Wolfboro Railroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had heard from one of my relatives that had a camp up there before that, Oh yeah, there used to be a little train and that's long gone. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, so, you know, I never really had that connection um, to it. I had heard of a little operation that was gone. Uh, we come into more later times. Um, I was just going into high school and we were visiting my grandmother up at her cottage for the weekend and behind her cottage, uh, it's what's now called Ellie's Woodland Walk. It's a little path. Yep. Um, this was really pre-trail days. Uh, I'd followed that path up the line or up through the woods one day. And it was kind of a rainy, crappy day. And I got lost. Yeah. Um, I, I think I would eventually find my way back anyway. But the trail wasn't as tamped down and as marked as it is today. But, you know, when I realized I was lost, I was about 15 feet from the railroad tracks. Yep. And I said, well, I know where the railroad tracks are. And looking at the sun, I was able to, the sun through the clouds, I was able to determine which way was east and west. So I said, well, if I walk west, I'll eventually hit Route 109. I know where I'm going to come out. Yep. Um, and as I'm walking down the track, I hit, what the heck is that sound? This track's abandoned. Yeah. And I hear a little toot of a horn. I turn around, and there are these little yellow and orange boxes <laughs> with headlights coming at me. Yeah. And I, st- I was, I was bewildered. You're right. I was like, "What the heck is this thing?" Yeah. And I just remember that sounded uh, probably four or five of them went by, yeah. and they're going the other direction that I was. I just was. I mean, it took me about five minutes to pick my jar up off the track. Right. <laughs> I mean, I was just amazed. I said, well, my God, what is that? What are those things? And I mean, I was a diehard rail fan. I didn't even know those things existed. Right. So I walked back, got to Route 109, walked back to the camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to my mother, I said, hey, you know, I want to go down to that train store. So I couldn't drive at the yeah. time. I was way too young. So I was at the, went to the train store. And I asked the guy, I said, hey, I saw a bunch of these things. What are they? And he said to me, um, those are called speeders 
or track cars and motor cars, whatever verbiage you want to use, yeah. generally they're called speeders. And he's telling me about that there's an organization that runs out of that engine house down there. And I said, oh, okay. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'd like to go see. He's like, well, they're gonna, they only meet once a month. And, you know, so I said, oh, that must have been their meeting today. So I missed it. And I said, you know, what would one of those cost? He's like, oh, I have one for, you know, this amount of money. And, I, you know, to a, a, a teenager, that might as well, you might as well just said a million dollars. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that just, that amount of money didn't exist in, in my realm. And, you know, I was working, I just started working at a model train store at the Peabody Mall. Uh, it was like a, called the Great Train Store. It was a part of a chain. But, uh you know, I started working there in high school and I was saving a little bit of money, but you know, when the guy gave me the price, I, I said, well, you know, yeah. might as well buy, buy a 737 too. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, I had forgotten about it and you know, over the winter it started, you know, nagging at me, nagging at me, nagging at me, nagging at me. And I, so I saved up my money and I went up there later that the next year. And I said to the guy, I said, you know, you still selling one of those cars? And he says, yep. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, well, he gave me some contact numbers because I guess the owner of that clickety-clack was one of the, tried to start Cotton Valley, but at some point mm-hmm. prior to my existence uh, in the club had a falling out with somebody. Okay, yep. um, I don't know the details of it, but he wasn't a member anymore. Um, and uh, what was the modern Cotton Valley? But, uh, you know, he says, oh, I'll sell you one of these cars. So I picked the cheaper of the two he had for sale because I didn't have a lot of money. And um, I looked at it. And then I said, well, I don't have a driver's license. Yeah. My family doesn't own a trailer. Uh, about 90 miles from my house. Uh, you know, these are the logistics uh, a 15-year-old doesn't think of. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the wisdom you have yeah. Not acquired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, basically for someone that knew everything back then, I didn't know anything. Right. Um, and I was like, Jesus, like, how am I going to get this thing home? So one of the numbers I had for the Cotton Valley group was a guy named Rick. And, um, you know, I contacted Rick and I said, blah, blah, blah. You know, I want, I want to buy this car. You know, the guy agreed to sell it to me. I haven't paid him yet. I haven't seen the car then like a, for a few minutes. And he's like, well, there's a guy in Danvers in your town that's a member. And I said, oh, geez, that's, that's lucky. Yeah. So I got a hold of him, made an arrangement. Um, you know, his name was Dwight Winkley, heck of a guy, uh, very knowledgeable. You know, Danvers guy grew up with the B&M, um, was in the motor cars, pretty heavy at the time, and also live steam. And, uh, so I contacted Dwight via phone and, you know, he said, yep, November meeting, I'll be there. I'll, I'll tow it home for you. I said, okay. So I had it all arranged. We went there. We looked at the car. The guy could have probably told me the car was on fire. I still would have bought it. Um, and with the condition it was, it probably would have been better off being on fire. Because, I mean, it was, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, yeah. again, as a teenager. So those, that car weighs about 14, 1500 pounds. Right. I mean, they're heavy. Um, and so I paid him the money. It was November. The ground was frozen. 
And his property was right up against the tracks by the mass landing crossing. If you're familiar with the Wolfboro line, I pushed that car across his lawn. Mm -hmm. We built a little temporary bridge of timber to get it onto the track. You know, a 15 year old's back can do amazing things. Especially when you, when you're powered by motivation and and stupidity. (laughs) And, uh, I push the car across that little uh, temporary bridge, get it up onto the track. I push it down to the mass landing crossing. Dwight comes down with his trailer, winches it on for me, bring it back to Fernald, uh, to the Cotton Valley meeting. And I'm a new member. I got, you know, I, I don't know anybody. Yeah. And I open up the hood on it. And of course, that's, you know, that's like the moss to the flame. Everybody starts coming over looking at it. And of right. course, the car didn't run. And People are like, oh, uh, uh, you got to fix this. You got to fix this. Uh. Yeah. So that was a that was my first reality check. <laughs> yeah. Brought it home. Uh, you know, it was a rainy, crappy night down here, and they set it off. I remember just sitting in the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was in my driveway, just sitting on the on the pavement. Um, right. you know, sitting in the car, just staring at it, smelling it. You know, just enjoying the experience. I. I didn't have a driver's license, <laughs> but I owned a piece of railroad equipment. Stock, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I guess that's, <laughs> that's where my priorities are, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I got involved with Cotton Valley. Um, I would attend the meetings. And that's why I kind of even more aware of what the Wolfboro was and when it was and who. You know, actually, there's some members of the Cotton Valley group that worked for the Wolfboro. Yeah. Um, and I really got a, a sense of like, wow, this was an amazing little operation. And then I got more into the history of the Wolfboro. And I think the Wolfboro is such a common thread yeah. with people is you only need to look at that postcard of the 250 going across a snowy causeway with the snow plow and caboose to say, if there is nothing else that is New England railroading, it's, it. it's, it's this, it. this is it. Yep. Uh, I mean, what an amazing operation they oh, had yeah. back then. And, you know, I wasn't around, but if I could say there's anything closer to paradise, it would have been that mm-hmm. um, a small branch line with a steam locomotive. And, you know, like Brian said, that is a well-proportioned engine oh, yeah. for that, Gorgeous. for that line. Um, I, I've seen the 250 cents, yep. uh, you know, at Edaville and when it was stored in Concord yes, on yep. New England Southern. Um, right by the round the turntable pit and you know, I poked around a little bit and man, I, I you know they went out of business for a reason yeah um, times were different back then they had competition and you know it is what it is but um, man I wish they were still around today oh, I, I mean I wish they were and I wish they I'm glad they're not because we wouldn't have what we have today with Cotton Valley right and that kind of brings me into the Cotton Valley stuff is you know, people think the Wolfboro's dead and gone. Yeah. And it's not. It's, uh, you know, most of the track is still in. The only portion of track that's gone is from Route 28 in downtown Wolfboro to the depot. Yeah. The rest of the line is still intact and used by rail vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> um, so people tend to think that the it's gone. It's, it, it, you know, you know, 1986, it disappeared into the fabric of time. And uh, it's not. I mean, it's, it's used all the time right um so cotton valley was formed in 1992 by a group of people that were interested in one running motor cars but two preserving that corridor yep. um and over time 
you know, there was an interest by the locals to build a trail. And obviously it's a beautiful piece of scenery. Um, but I think they took the most common sense approaches. You know what? It was a grassroots effort. They didn't have the RTP grants and federal funding that they have today. Uh, you know, it was it was the Cotton Valley members helping build that trail. Yeah. And it was through partnerships and good faith that that worked and still continues to work today. Right. Uh, we work very closely um, with the snowmobile groups, with the locking groups to preserve that corridor for all three of us to use. Yep. Um, and we live in harmony. Uh, you know, and I think that should really be a model when rail trails are considered. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recently did a interview with the union leader about that issue uh, that they're having over in Concord is, you know, you have one group that wants hard this side and another group that wants hard this side. And, you know, we got to meet in the middle, but most railroad right of ways are 60 feet wide. In in most cases, yeah. you know, the tracks are four or six feet wide. Right. Uh, you know, what's the other, you know, 50 feet doing, <laughs> 50 feet, right. you know, I mean, how many, how, how wide is your trail going to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I also see, you know, Wolfboro, it's, it's, it's pretty well used um, by people. Um, but I think, you know, they're coming at it with the, all three groups working together. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have our track that we can use and we are the only place in the United States, to my knowledge, uh, that you can belong to an organization and just use track at your discretion after you've been mentored and gone through our safety program um but you can use track when you want yeah. and that's that's an amazing thing uh that we have we also uh maintain and, and run on the uh what's technically the conway branch we call it the ossipy line um it's about a seven mile stretch over in ossipy yeah. from mountain view station up to Route 16 and down to Route 28 Bridge, where the North Coast property starts. Yep. Um, I mean, again, we maintain it. We work with the snowmobilers. Uh, we do all the maintenance out there. I mean, I've been vice president of the club for a couple of years now, four years, three, four years now, at least. And uh, that was, before that, I was a director. Yeah. Um, I was approached by some of the, the older members and say, you know, you really young and showing interest we like you to step forward and I, I did that but i will say they are a fantastic group of people and you know some organizations you always have the you know some internal politics and I, i'm very thankful to say that cotton valley doesn't have that yeah and we continue to remain free of that mm -hmm. and that that's a great thing because i mean our, our our club president bruce stewart worked for the wolfboro and i'll tell you he is a tenacious tenacious leader um, you know, his, we kind of joke around, they call him ricochet rabbit. Cause he's always going in like 82 different directions, but <laughs> I tell you what, if you were in any organization, you'd want him on your side because, um, you know, we were able to get legislation passed that finally recognized motor cars as an official OHRV in New Hampshire. Yep. Uh, so that we now have the same legal footing, uh, at the table, so to speak as snowmobiles and ATVs. And that was a big accomplishment for us. Um, the fact that, you know, we were able to get the trail done and, you know, have it so that motor cars can use it and we can use it safely with pedestrians. The fact that 
you know, we do excursions and we have partnerships with local short lines. Yeah. Um, is another amazing thing that I don't think you see in tons of places. I mean, there are a few friends of the railroad type organizations, but to the extent in professionalism that we offer yeah. a short line that seeks our assistance and, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's some operations in New Hampshire that have taken part of that and some in, some in Maine too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can come out, uh, you know, in tourist railroads and short lines, very short lines and uh, museums, you know, it's no insult to them. They can't survive without volunteers. Right. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if a trolley museum up at Seashore was able to had to pay every single person to do that job, they they, they wouldn't survive. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we go up and we offer our assistance, and uh, you know, it, it's a great relationship that we forge with local short lines. Uh, and I, I hope it continues, and I I think it will. I think it's a great thing to have. We put in some sweat equity, cutting brush, and doing some of the minor stuff that doesn't really make sense to pay someone to go do, yeah. make their property look great. And we get to ride on motor cars. Right. That's true. Yeah. And I think, I think a great thing about the Cotton Valley group is, uh, it's just the opportunities that it provides, um, you know, for its members, but also, you know, people that, you know, go for a ride along or something to experience various parts of, of railroading here in, in New Hampshire and in New England. Uh, you think about uh, the rides that you guys do out on the Hillsborough branch on the Milford Bennington. Um, which is really the only chance anybody can have now to experience uh, that part of the Boston and Maine from a rail vehicle. Um, you know, and, and there's a great video that we were able to do um, a few years ago with, with Cotton Valley, where we rode out to Bennington uh, from, from Wilton to Bennington and back. And there's a video on, on our YouTube channel of that. But uh, that, that's an exclusive opportunity that, that you can't get anywhere else. And Cotton Valley, you know, providing that service to the short lines, but also providing that historical service to witness these things from a rail vehicle is just one of a kind. Excuse me. You know, one, one of the privileges I've had is with the motor car groups, being able to ride some track that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. One of the lines I, I comes to mind is the, the Callus branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a trip up there and we rode that all the way out to Callis yeah. um, from Machias uh, through the Moosehorn Wildlife Refuge, <clears throat> saw where the Ayers Junction is, where the Eastport Branch went off. And I, I got to say, you know, that was an absolutely amazing ride. And why it was ripped up, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't see a technical reason why in most places the, tra- the trail that is not used very much uh, to my understanding, couldn't be six feet off to the side. Right. Um, yeah, I, I expect anyone to build a new bridge, but you know, the chance a rail car could uh, ever be out there at the same time you stop and let the pedestrians go. Yes. So you know, that was kind of a, a sad thing to see that go. But I was happy to be able to ride it. Yep. Um, and I think you know, with rail cars. Uh, you know, with the national organization, I mean, we do some amazing runs that people wouldn't normally see unless you decided to go work for the railroad. Yeah. Uh, we've done the excursion um, from White River Junction up to Newport, Vermont on, on the Pompey sub. And you would never see that unless you either had a time machine yeah. <laughs> or an engineer's ticket yep. and work for the railroad. Uh, same with the, really uh, the, the white mountain branch, right. Um, you know, from Concord to Lincoln on the snowflake excursion, 
that is something you wouldn't see ordinarily. I mean, you see bits of it on the hobo in Winnipesaukee. Yeah, exactly. But you don't see the entire contiguous branch. I mean, there's so much amazing scenery. Oh, yeah. Especially going through Livermore and just... Yeah, north of Plymouth. Oh, it's amazing. That concludes this week's episode of High Green and the first part of our interview with Jesse Maisie. Be sure to come back next week for part two, where we talk about Jesse's career working for railroads on former Boston and Maine trackage and a broad discussion about the purpose of the railroad interest and what it can offer fans growing up in the post-Boston and Maine world. Thanks again for listening as always, and we're looking forward to having you back for another episode of High Green.